Thank you for joining us for another edition of Life Sciences and Biotech CEOs, the podcast devoted to spotlighting some of the exciting personalities in the biotech field. Today, I'm really excited that I'm joined by our guest, Jacob Planville, CEO of Centivax, a company dedicated to developing a single broad spectrum platform for the development of universal vaccines, initially now for the flu. Jake is a Stanford PhD, as well as a member of the Stanford Scientific Advisory Committee uh, for the Sean Parker Center for Allergy and Asthma Research, and a Scientific Advisory Board member at the University of San Francisco. Jake co-founded Distributed Bio in 2012 a biologics discovery contract research organization that was at the time one of the first, I think, um, computational biology companies. Um, the company was sold in, in uh, 2020 for $110 million to Charles River Labs. And as part of that sale negotiation, uh, Jake was able to extract the core broad spectrum uh, vaccine platform, as well as a couple of other things and uh, use that as the basis for his founding of Centivax. Jake and Centivax were the recipient of the Gates Foundation Grand Challenge Ending the Pandemic Threat Award and the subject of a Netflix docu-series uh, recording the work in animal testing of the universal vaccine platform. Uh, that was called Pandemic, How to Prevent an Outbreak. So Jake, you started distributed bio on the basis, as you say, of the confluence of biotech and big data and artificial intelligence. And while you were there, you developed what you called Superhuman 2.0 and Tumblr. Can you tell us about them and, and how you uh, went about that discovery? Sure. So <clears throat> the, the source of that discovery really traced back to my time at Pfizer. Uh, I, I joined Pfizer around 2008 on the Renat research site that was developing antibody drugs. They were using two competing technologies to do that. One was uh, hybridoma, uh, Nobel Prize awarded technology where you immunize mice and then you harvest out the antibodies that mice produce. Uh, and the other was phage display, a separate Nobel awarded technology where you have uh, little vials that have uh, tens or even hundreds of billions of antibodies in them and, and you uh, I've attached the DNA to each antibody so you can fish out an antibody of interest. Uh, my timing was good. I showed up uh, right when high throughput sequencing instrument technologies that were, you know, driven by the arms race for building the better, faster, cheaper genome. These things now fit on a bench top. And uh, I was trying to understand why both of those systems sometimes wouldn't produce the antibodies you want. And I asked if I could use the deep sequencing instrument not to look at uh, the genome, the 26,000 genes, but to look at the hundreds of millions of antibodies, the many antibodies in a mouse when it's immunized or when those phages light libraries to try to figure out how to make them better. And that, that early technology, which now is called repertoire sequencing, there's companies like Adaptive that are based on it. Um, it gave me a lot of very useful insights into ways that we should be able to improve immunization in vivo or from the mice. And ultimately that gave rise to ideas I had around 
um, broad spectrum vaccines. But but it also, when looking at the antibody libraries, it made me realize these libraries were like one thousandth of the size people thought they were because of redundancy of genetic information in the library. Also, lots of the antibodies were not well suited to fold up properly. And so I, at my time at Pfizer, I published a series of papers describing how to improve those libraries using DNA synthesis methods. Um, and that, I think that really is your sweet spot of where computational biology works really well when you have lots of data and a way to pick out interesting data. So I could take a library of 36 billion antibodies, I could heat that library, sequence it before and after that the antibodies that didn't fall apart under heat, and I could learn the rules of how to make more thermostable antibodies. And that was just one ex example of many different cool properties you can learn by looking at tens or hundreds of millions of data points. So I found a distributed bio because I realized that I built a series of these improved synthetic or natural libraries, and I felt that there was still a lot of room to improve and that there was a market here. Um, phage display had just become available, so I could build a technology. I could build with freedom to operate on that technology platform, and the I realized there was also an opportunity to build a company <clears throat> without venture capital because uh, the sequencing instruments had been commoditized, but my algorithms for analyzing the immune system really weren't. And so what we did is we found a distributed bio. I started by licensing out access to the, the suite of algorithms I had. We built a uh, Amazon cloud-based platform so people could upload Sanger or high-throughput sequencing data and have it analyzed in, in the way that an engineer wants it to be analyzed. So to be able to look at every clone in the context of hundreds of thousands of clones in terms of um, how to engineer them better. So we, we licensed that out and that brought in money. So we had a first profitable vertical and I was doing that because it gave us the money to then build a dramatically better antibody library. And we, I was, you know, right place at the right time. I built the tools. So we were the ones to see more antibodies than anybody else had. And I was able to basically at, at the simplest form, just say, how do human, human bodies create good antibodies? And I want to copy that process avoid weird synthetic things that don't show up in a person because there's something wrong with those antibodies and I want to not include them. And then also ask, how is 30 years of antibody monoclonal engineering taught us how to build good antibodies and to codify both of those things into better libraries? And so I built this library. First, we started licensing it out to like Pfizer, Beringer, Ingelheim, Tiva, Gilead, and a number of other um, big, big, big partners that had teams that could perform their own phage display. And then as that grew, uh, I then built out my own team to provide services to many other companies. I think we had 60 pharmaceutical and biotech companies that they didn't want to license the library. They wanted us to do the discovery. And so we would run that. And that's kind of a nice model to control the process because you can standardize. We, we were using roboticized automated systems to get very, very specific protocols to run the exact same way every time. And so I was able to build that company out um, pretty quickly. And you know, computational biology doesn't solve everything. That's I'm not trying to just like press a button on a computer to get an antibody out, but it does help make sure you build much better libraries and to QC your library during construction and to give you insights on how to optimize those panning protocols. And and the consequences where we were able to go after hard targets like GPCRs and ion channels, peptide MHC complexes with single amino acid changes, and then the kind of the tough stuff. If you have a much better library, a thousand times bigger, you can start hitting these targets that previously people had missed. And that's kind of how we made a name for ourselves. I wonder if this is a comment on big pharma, but how you couldn't have been, you weren't developing these in a vacuum. You must have talked to someone at Pfizer to get the permissions and that sort of thing. How did they let it let you go 
Oh, they were one of my first, yeah, they were one of my first clients. Right. Um, so Pfizer, for, Pfizer wants to control the IP around their drugs, right? So that, um, you know, for good reason, they're a drug company, that's the IP that they focus on. I was kind of in a lucky situation where for, for my career um, at Pfizer in that what I was developing were methods. So I was developing algorithms um, and I was developing methods and those Pfizer didn't really care that much about. So we were, we was able to publish on them. I think if I was working on a specific drug target, that's a lot harder to publish. And they typically wait for very good IP position before publishing. Um, I was not in that position. So I was able, and I was on a frontier new area of technology. I was building synthetic antibody libraries. I was using deep sequencing methods. Like that stuff was all publishable and freedom free to, to put out in the world, we, you know, we asked Pfizer was not interested in, in securing IP around those things. And, and so in my business, I went out and it wasn't like I was working on the targets of Pfizer. That's what they would care about. Um, what I was building was new generations of better antibody libraries and Pfizer liked that they wanted better software. They wanted better antibody libraries. So they licensed both of those things from me and they were supportive of, of that effort. So I think that's been kind of the relationship, the, the good timing of what I was working on were methods and platforms and not on specific target areas that, that I carried forward. And then at that time, you must have been, what, 24? Yeah, I was, I, was, I, was a little, I was a little older than that. I had that kind of winding path to get there, but, uh, but I was younger. Yeah, I was, um, <clears throat> I mean, that's the other reason I left is that I, I got promoted for four years in a row but, but I had a BA when I was at Pfizer. So I was a principal scientist with a BA and I really, I mean, it was a great experience. I, the Renat facility had these, like a lot of expertise for everywhere from like biology to bioengineering, kinetics, um, and kind of everything soup to nuts, preclinical. Pre -clinical, yeah. Um, every, you know, even cell line development, MCB. So uh, it gave me an opportunity and because I was a computational immunologist, I could go around and, and talk to people, go up to them and say, and rather than just saying like, Hey, what are you doing? They'd be like, go away. We're busy. But I felt like, Hey, I could build a piece of software to help you what you're doing. If you can teach me how that works, then they say, yeah, come in the room. And so I, I did that I, on all the groups. I basically just tried to figure out what I wanted to learn as much as possible about every step of the complex, but ultimately tractable by a discovery process. And then partially it was to figure out how to make a niche for myself to be useful um, and part of it is because I need, I knew I need to understand that whole process if I hope to build drugs. And it was a, a great opportunity, a great group of people to be able to, to do that with. Um, and certainly it, it helped me, you know, I have an idea and I just wander around and with smart people and ask their opinions. And if there's something stupid about it, one of them would point it out. And so I think it saved me a lot of like, kind of sped up my like intellectual evolutionary time because I could go <laughs> kill, kill bad ideas quickly and learn along the way, which, which I definitely appreciate. But the maturity to recognize that and the practicality of it all um, is, is fascinating to me. Um, I think you mentioned that uh, perhaps your upbringing in Guatemala had a lot to do with that practical sense. Yeah. Can you tell us about, about what your upbringing was like and how it's affected you through life and that sort of thing. Sure. Yeah. I guess I, I forgot to mention on your last point. Yeah. It's, I, I, when I left, I realized I, I didn't have kids yet. I was on the younger side of my career. I had this idea for a broad spectrum vaccine technology. And, and I felt that if I waited too long, it would be harder to, to take a big risk. And so it was kind of that moment where I'm like, if I don't do it now, I may never do it. And that's why 
left, applied for the PhD program at Stanford and launched my first company. And that both of those were designed to build resources to de-risk the vaccine idea and to surround myself with smart people at Stanford to make sure that I wasn't being myopic. And I think it was good timing that I was young enough in my career to say, this might be crazy, but I'll try it. So well, yeah, with respect to my background, I think, so I, I, uh, I'm the son of innkeepers. I, I grew up in Guatemala on Lake Atitlan. My parents owned the Posada de Santiago. It's a hotel and restaurant in Santiago Atitlan between the three volcanoes on the south side of the lake in a Mayan village. And I think it, I think it did have a pretty profound effect on my biotechnology career. And <clears throat> surprisingly, there are a bunch of parallels that I found in my later career compared to the village. So, you know, it was a civil war when I was growing up. It was, you know, not particularly stable and sometimes not safe. Um, and my parents managed to build a business anyway. And you're building a business in an, in an area where, you know, Mayan Guatemalan communities are, they don't have the same level. They didn't have the same educational opportunities. People aren't coming and bringing you CVs. Like what I learned from my father is how to really like be able to judge a person effectively and size them up in the absence of the document. So the point now where I glance at CVs, but honestly, people can put anything they want in a CV, but if you look them in the eye, you can, you can learn a lot more about them and watch and watch them for a while. And my father would do that. And he was really good at like placing people at the right position to where they could be their most effective without trying to grind on them some somewhere where they just inherently, you know, people are just inherently good at some things and not others. Like why pick on them on the thing they're bad at? If you can place right. them where they can be excellent and get people to work together. Like you want people to be proactive, but the, the, the ship needs to listen to the captain. So you need to have that balance. And, um, and I think also in my later career, I was building distributed bio. I kept remembering Guatemala. I, I, I felt weirdly like deja vu. And I realized that like a bio, running a CRO is actually very similar to watching my parents run a restaurant. Like you have, you have recipes versus protocols. You have staff that needs to go produce them in a consistent fashion. Um, you have a menu that you need to customize for an appropriate business model. You need to be able to have people be aware of your business, come in and have a good dining experience where the food shows up on time and, and go and go tell their friends about it. You know, like I think there's, uh, you know, inventory can run out and, and you're running kind of like a civil war. Biotechnology can be somewhat tumultuous and you need to have layered backup plans to make sure that you achieve success, even when something un unexpected happens. And so I think I, I was like, it seems funny, but I think I was, very well prepared for running and scaling that business um, in biotechnology, because in many respects, it's very similar to running a restaurant. And the other thing about Guatemala is that, uh, you know, in the civil war, we didn't have a hospital in Santiago and there were these little clinics, the power would go out a lot. And um, I had asthma. So, you know, I personally was affected by having limited access to medical care, but like I was comparatively lucky, you know, I, I, I could always afford the medicine where there's a lot of kids in Santiago that were, you know, they're needlessly suffering based on very preventable and treatable diseases just by, by virtue of missing medicine. And, and all, immunology was almost always involved. It was infectious disease. It was, you know, I think we're going, undergoing this continued evolution, revolution in immunology now appreciating effects, you know, neurological disorders and heart disease and so forth. But right there, it was in my face that um, kids were getting stunted because of not having access to deworming medicine and, and, and simple medicines. And so I think that kind of left a lasting impression on me, particularly as I went back over the years where the, it was crazy when I was a little kid, when I was like nine, I could, my brother and I could look across the entire Mercado, the market, and we could see each other because we were taller than everybody in Santiago. And I just thought that, that it was a genetic thing that the people were just very small there. But as 
um, as I went to the United States and was coming back during college to visit family, the the next generation of Zutuiles, the Mayan people there, were, were getting like a head taller than their parents. And the thing that had changed was that they started handing out deworming medicine. And the Civil War was over, so there's better access to stuff. But I think they started handing out deworming medicine in the schools and they had better access to medical care because of a hospitalito that was small hospital was created in Santiago that, that I'm on the, the board of. Um, and I, and it just transformed people. I, I, I was shocked. I was like, who are these kids? And I'm like, wait, those are just the wheel kids. And, and I realized that the, the short thing was a function of like, just like chronic, like malnutrition or, or chronic infection. And it was preventable. And it's not just that the kids got taller. It's that they were able to focus better in school. They were spending less time being sick. It means that their careers were better. There was like a blooming that happened in Santiago because of like easily re remedied medicine, which is like is amazing, but it also kind of pissed me off because it tells me that there was this like lost bounty of human potential that was easily addressable with a missing medicine. And that's part, I think that heavily influences my belief that like maybe the medicine's not in the room or in your pocket, it's not at the store or it hasn't been invented yet, but medicine can make things better and we can spend less time fixing our broken selves and and more time doing what humans are great at which is creating new new things and i think that's one of the my driving needs to go make better medicines for the world is that to capture that that lost bounty of of humans potential one of the things that we found we had in common i think was the thought that from your perspective for the patient from mine simple economics the wasted resources yeah. Um, in healthcare and and what we could do with those resources in either healthcare or other areas like hunger or climate change or whatever it happens to be, if we had them back, if we could get them back. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of the reasons I love vaccines. A vaccine, you know, you can you can make a vaccine and sell it profitably for like 20 bucks. Right. Like that is the most efficient medicine, <laughs> like biologic medicines. You're talking about, you know, if you're lucky, a couple hundred dollars to manufacture your cost of goods and then you're going to sell it for two thousand to eight thousand dollars. A vaccine, it's, you know, twenty five dollars. So you, you mass release it. You can it's the if you have a good vaccine that can protect you from a disease, it's going to save you so much money. And it avoids not just the money, but the downtime, the impact on family members. Um, I, it also had, you know, vaccines. They've only succeeded once, but they have succeeded in eradicating smallpox. And, you know, they had smallpox marks on the face of the pharaoh 6,000 years ago. This is something that harassed us since the beginning of time. And they slayed one of our most ancient enemies forever from the earth. Like, that is amazing. And that's that's what part of what motivates my work is that broad spectrum vaccines, um, they bring back the possibility of being able to initiate new eradication campaigns. And I, I, if you think about what work you could do with your hands now that could have the greatest lasting combined, combining uh, compounded legacy on human health, it's eradication is like un, unparalleled compared to almost anything else we can accomplish. So, and I completely agree. I think there's like, we spend so much money and so much of our time and it's like worse than people think. It's not just the period you're sick. It's the period where you're slow to recover, right? It's the people around you that had to stop what they were doing to try to help you. I think if you can have people being less sick, less often, then there's a lot of extra resources where people could go build build new things. And like you said, we there's a bunch of stuff we need to spend time working on. Like we do have climate change problems. We have an energy. We need better sources and more diversified sources of energy. There, you know, I I <laughs> I would prefer people spend less time at war and more time building positive things and doing uh -huh. economic transactions. And I think if you have people that aren't sick and you have people that are less desperate, it opens up the world for that.
So what were your parents like? Tell me about your mom. Yeah. So my mom is, uh, she's an artist. I, I think both of my parents affected me pretty profoundly and I was lucky to have them. They're obviously characters because I, I grew up in Guatemala. Um, they're both Americans. My mom is, uh, she's an artist. Like uh, she does oil paints and um, sculpting and, and charcoal. She's extremely caring person. Um, and I think it, it probably helped me that she would spend so much time exposing me to art when I was really young. I, I had an early aptitude for for mathematics and and computer science when, when I had computers available. And so I think, I think I could have easily been shunted down that path or like, okay, this is going to be a quant. Let's go make him a quant. And then my mother diversified me where I spent a lot of time with um, all manner of art, art and you know, Greek fairy tales and stuff. And I, I think that that has really helped me because uh, creating new things I think people, you know, they like to celebrate machine learning and these other tools, but the truth is that's not actually what creates a new thing. What creates a new thing is being able to be creative thinker and imagine how to combine new sets of tools and imagine a future that doesn't exist yet, but could be made possible if you can just synapse between that imagined future and tools that exist now, but haven't been put together in a certain configuration. And I think I thank my mom for that. She's also like a, I would say, brilliant implementer of kind of how to put people together to accomplish tasks. There was this horrible mudslide that happened in Santiago. I think it was 2006 and uh, 400 people were, were covered with mud and died. And there was a whole part of the village that was wiped out. And my mother got involved in creating this, um, this cooperative where she would, they, they do backstrap looms. That's how the, the indigenous create their clothing. And she, there were some efforts to try to give people food or money, but like the food runs out, the money runs out. And then you're still stuck, stuck living in this like little plastic shelter and you've lost your home. Um, what she did is got resources in where they had a large women's cooperative where they would go and she, they funded the backstrap looms and the thread and all the resources where they could go weave again. And it served purpose of arming people because they can go sell what they weave. So it's a, a source of, of um, kind of like, essentially a, grant, a micro grant for each person of these large number of women. So they could go make these things. It also let them replace their clothing that was lost because the Zutuiles have like remarkable clothing where they weave um, these little birds and other, you know, imagery into their clothes. And it's a source of pride. And, and it also was a source of like emotional sort of therapy where the women could sit around together and weave together as kind of this using art as, as therapy and as financing and a way to, to, gather people is a very effective program. And I think it, it's examples like that of it's creative, but practical that I really admire about her. And I, I hopefully carry some of that with me. How did two American expats, presumably with education and some funding, yeah. end up in a country with a civil war? Yeah. So, so yeah. So what happened was my grandmother on my dad's side, she was a single mom. They had four kids. Um, I think they were living in a trailer park at one point. They were, you know, didn't have a lot of resources. She was a nurse. And when my dad left home, she was finally single and, or like not single, sorry. She finally didn't have kids to be responsible for. Um, and, and so a couple of years after she decided to go down with one of her nurse friends to El Salvador, she actually wrote a whole book all about this called blood in the cornfields. And um, she was in El Salvador and then went up to Guatemala and when she was in Guatemala, she found Lake Atitlan. And Lake Atitlan, if you should Google it, it's it's one of these places that people come to, and it almost has this like magnetic pull on them, where they end up coming back over and over again. That it's it's astoundingly beautiful, 
my 17 Mayan villages that speak to a couple different languages around the lake, um, Sutuwila and Kachikel predominantly, and with these like gorgeous volcanoes, it's a really awesome place. And so she she fell in love with it as people are likened to do. And she told my father um, that she wanted to build a bed and breakfast. And my dad, meanwhile, young guy, he was already a successful young entrepreneur. He built an agricultural import business, and um, he. He wanted to do something nice for his for his mom, and so he started sending money to help her create her dream, where she wanted to build a little bed and breakfast. But I think what the way he tells it is different than the way she tells it. What he tells it is she was screwing around down there for like nine months, and she hadn't even bought a piece of property yet. So he decided to come down. He was like, "Mom, what's going on? I'm not just paying you to party." And and my grandmother was like, "Oh, you should come on down. Like, you know, you should help me. It's real tough. Besides, you should meet my roommate. She's this like twenty something blonde blonde lady artist from uh, California." And my dad's like, "Oh, she my mom knows me so well." So he flies down. That ended up being my mother. So my mother was actually my grandmother's roommate, wow. and that's how my my parents met. And they kind of fell in love while they were building the the property. Um, the Civil War was going on during that period, but it was all up in the jungles in the north, the Paten. Um, which is like the deep jungle. But as they had opened it in you know, 1979 and then 1980, the war started shifting over to the lake and the lake became occupied by the military. And my mom was pretty pregnant with me. And it, there were starting, people were starting to just, it's called disaparecidos. It's where people are taken in the night and then presumed to be guerrillas. The military takes them and they, you know, you don't see them again. And um, they decided that, you know, that wasn't a good place for me to be born. So they, they went back up to Oregon and I was born in Oregon. And my grandmother left as well. And so the, the property was abandoned for a few years. And then at some point, my parents said, you know, we need to, they wanted to go back. The original plan was to fix up the property and then try to sell it. Because um, the Civil War, Santiago was still occupied. It wasn't great, but they wanted to try to get something out of the, it was a big piece of property and it had a bunch of bungalows and a big hotel on it, a restaurant on it. And so we moved down in the middle of the Civil War and the we probably would have just tried to fix it up and then sell it at a loss except well except that that first year and a half we were there there was a there was a massacre in Santiago Atitlan um where the military shot a you know white flag bearing Mayan crowd was kind of upset with the behavior of some of the, the military troops and then the and then there was a there was a photographer that was staying at our hotel so he went over and took pictures of all the bodies in the cornfields before the military took them away and that became international news and, and the military was kicked out of Santiago forever. The president had to come in and say there. So we were no longer occupied. And that then meant that more people started visiting Santiago. And the, so they it was the first couple of years were tough. We were building it up in the middle of the Civil War. There were travel advisories against going to Guatemala. So the people who came to our restaurant tended to be characters. And, <laughs> and but but over time, the peace accords were eventually signed in 1996. And then there was a, and, you know, there, NAFTA, other things that happened that, that opened up the world to Guatemala. I think also the Internet came online and, and that gave more visibility into what otherwise had been kind of this like isolated world. And and the place became, you know, bloomed. And I think their hard work during the tough period paid off as things started opening up after. But that was the the weird history of how we ended up growing up by like, growing up in Guatemala. So you built a, a profitable company and distributed bio, and you're selling access to your antibody library to who's who of pharma. Yep. Um, and you decide to sell to Charles Rubin. Why'd you sell? Yeah. So, you know, when I first created, I wish I'd kept the napkin. I, I literally had a napkin when I first 
created distributed bio. I had a napkin where I said, look, here's the plan. We're going to create a series of stepwise verticals. The first one's going to be the software platform. It has the lowest amount of cash in. You don't need a capital equipment because we can use the Amazon cloud. We can use a web interface and we can license it to a bunch of companies that I know need it. That's enough money to then build the, the library technology. Um, we're going to license that out to groups that have their own phage display groups. Um, and it doesn't require much work on our side. We just need a small team to build that. And then the third tier was going to be, okay, now we're going to start doing services. So that's, uh, you need a bigger team for that and we can scale it. Um, and, but there's, you know, hundreds of companies that might be interested in that technology. And then the fourth was that during that period, we are building a stack of tools. They're, they're being battle hardened by the fact that customers need to keep using them. So they're all going to be very stable and good. Um, and we're going to use those to discover new medicines. And the, the support infrastructure was around this broad spectrum vaccine idea that I'd been working on since 2012. Um, so that was basically the plan. And that plan was working. Um, I always felt that the service business was, you know, I was happy with it, but it was a stepping stone. I think we had a head start because of computational biology. I think where I was able to build these better libraries that had an, an objective advantage of being able to just carpet bomb any antigen um, target with huge numbers of hits against just about any epitope you could think of. But those technologies, the deep sequencing was being commoditized. I was publishing like crazy. So you could read my work and understand how I was doing some of these things. And I, uh, there were other companies that were starting to copy um, some of my, my library designs. So other libraries were getting better. We were a first mover, but I knew these other groups were going to catch up. Um, I had a market advantage because I'd done it. I think whoever ends up doing the first set of demonstration cases and then has the first set of molecules going into clinic, that's a big argument for advantage of a of a, of a technology in this space where people are pretty risk adverse to trying something new because they've been burned before by, by crappy antibody discovery platforms. Um, but, but they were getting better. Um, I also thought that the, we had advantages in certain areas, but there's certain areas where the transgenic mice I thought were good platform. And, um, uh, I just knew that the, the market was getting more competitive also because phage display was, you know, phage display was off off patent and yeast display was going to become available. I think the timing of, of it was, I felt that that was becoming a crowded market. I had that big edge. And also the other thing is I had now matured over that period. I had matured a whole bunch of the data for the broad spectrum vaccine technology. And so I felt like this is a good time where I feel like it's a good time to go sell to a, a big partner like Charles river. They can maintain that advantage of, because they have the infrastructure for all these other things. So we had built that early, that early win, and then they could go distribute that out and maintain that that you know, uh, dominance with respect to the technology, and I want I was ready to go shift and go all in on the universal vaccine technology because I'd, I'd matured it. We'd gotten these four rounds of of animal studies that I'd completed uh, in an, in a facility that that my brother and I built, and I felt that it was time to kind of go for the legacy, and so it was a good time to sell and and kind of transition to that fourth that fourth step in that four step. Uh, rung that I, I drew out on that original napkin. Um, so before we, you, you know, you go on to Centivax, and before we get into Centivax itself, tell us what you mean by broad spectrum vaccine technology. Sure. In simple language. So I'll start by saying, obviously, I like vaccines. They are one of the greatest medical advances since sanitation and fire. And as we mentioned earlier, they have the capacity to eradicate, you know, some of our most ancient enemies, like cleanse them forever from the earth. It's a great platform. They're 
per unit and expensive, and they can avoid a huge amount of hurt. Um, they're, they're a big market. It's 125 billion and growing market. And there's a whole bunch of great companies that have emerged in the space. So it's a good space to be in. The, but for all of those multi-billion dollar IPOs and, and blockbusters and all that good, vaccines in their current form, since their inception by Edward Jenner, do not do a good job against mutating viruses, rapidly mutating viruses. Uh, the, the problem is simple. It's that whatever they put in, it takes time to manufacture a vaccine. So by the time it's ready to inject, what you're being injected with is not the same type of virus as the one you're going to be infected with because of mutations. This is why the coronavirus vaccines, where they're still injecting you with the, with the Wuhan strain back from 2020, in January 2020, they no longer really stop you from getting sick much against the very new variants of concern like BA5 and Omicron and so forth. Um, it's why we have to make a new flu shot every single year. And it doesn't actually work that well. It's like 30 to 60% effective because they're picking in February, the strains that go in the vaccine and they don't even pick all new strains. Uh, they, they even let you pick things from like the year or even two years before to keep in there just because otherwise the risk of trying to manufacture four things at once in the vaccine or is too great that there'd be a delay and therefore no vaccine come fall. And even if you picked everything in February, you still have six months of mutations that are accumulating prior to the viruses that emerge in fall. And every once in a while, something goes out of left field and mutates quite a bit. Like, you know, I'll remember Omicron, the same kinds of things happen with flu. Um, and so, so we have to make a new one every year and they have to do a whole different process down in the Southern hemisphere, which is nuts. It's the same reason why we don't have a working vaccine for HIV yet. And why there's a number of other pathogens where the, you know, herpes, um, malaria, these things all, the, the pathogens have mutate or they diversify their coat proteins to mess with our immune system so that what we recognize gets obsolete. And that's, that's the core problem. And for a long time, I think people just sort of you know, rendered their hair. Woe is me. We're never going to solve this. And that's why we're stuck in this crazy holding pattern with, with influenza, which by the way, is now the same holding pattern with coronavirus. They're talking about updating it frequently. And that is a Sisyphusian problem. Uh, and it doesn't need to be that way. So back in 2000 and to 2004, there were a series of these beautiful papers that came out where people said, Hey, you know, actually some people occasionally are producing these special antibodies that bind these conserved sites on these viruses. And flu has a conserved site. HIV has some conserved sites. Coronavirus has some conserved sites. They, any virus we've looked at, it's actually not the case they can mutate anywhere. They always have an Achilles heel, some little spot that they can't mutate or the virus is no longer infectious. And that's cool because if you can get an antibody right against that spot, then that spot's shared across all the variants. So you can get broad neutralization of all the variants. They're called broadly neutralizing antibodies. And people got excited about them because they said, well, hell, if we, if we can get our vaccines to make those kinds of antibodies, then we could have broad protection against all of the different variants. The, a broad spectrum vaccine means like a single flu shot that'll actually work 80, 90% effectiveness, and you don't have to change it every year. It'll just work against all the forms of flu. It'd be a, a vaccine for the coronavirus that you don't have, it's not, you're going to be protected from getting infected. That's what you actually want. You do not want to get infected. You don't want to infect your friends. You don't want to get sick. And in order to do that, you need to have antibodies that hit these conserved sites. And, and for HIV, it's the bars lower. It's just a vaccine that works. Hit those conserved sites. You actually get a working vaccine. So that's what broad spectrum vaccines are. Um, you may have heard of them as universal vaccines. I think that's like 
kind of a hype term. I think medically it's more appropriate to call them broad spectrum. Um, your goal is to hit these conserve sites. Evolution is a tricky devil, but you hit these broad spectrum sites, you're going to be protected against the majority of the virus, the majority of the chime. And that is a radical shift compared to where we got from generous technology. And there really hasn't, there's been some improvements over time. I don't want to minimize great work that's been done by many vaccinologists, but we have gotten stuck against these rapidly mutating pathogens. And these epitope focusing style broad spectrum technologies let us go that next step to finish the job that Jenner started and be able to, to create vaccines for a whole new class of pathogens that are not currently well addressed by vaccine technology. And you know, I've said this before, Jake, I'm an amateur, but I see that as growing out of the superhuman 2.0. Am I right about that? They're they're related. Sort of I think intellectually. Yeah. So I think the yeah. So the I think I got I was at the right place at the right time multiple times in my career for this, and I think I was interested in things that were helpful. I I think what kind of if I look back on it, I was doing a couple of useful things that helped me arrive at this technology. One was I, you know, was an early seminal developer of deep sequencing, so I was able to look in the immune system to actually like. The problem with previous vaccine technologies is they know they weren't broad spectrum, but how do you fix it? It's this super complicated immune response. It's a black box. You put a vaccine in and something comes out and it's not what you want. The deep sequencing let me open the hood of the car. So I could actually look at the engine and understand why it wasn't running well and get some insight into why we miss these conserved sites. Um, and then for, with respect to superhuman, I think my antibody library work was super helpful because I was not just observing the immune system. I was engineering it. And so it, I basically applied, you know, I approached it like an engineer, quant quantifiable mechanistic optimization of various parameters. And like, I was having to calculate, like, what's your per, per molecule probability of being able to interact with a target? And what's the relationship of that per probability to a distribution of affinities? A lot of those parameterizations of the immune system took you kind of out of like, you know, philosophy and chemistry and more into like, you know, hard, hard science engineering of, of immune systems. And that, that turned out to be really helpful because I realized from all that work, it is a lot of it's translational to how I think about in vivo immune systems, because I've optimized antibody repertoires. I understand them. And, and that means that I understood where their defects were. I'm either trying to engineer it in a, a test tube, or I'm trying to understand where an organism could, could succeed or fail and then adapt the antigens to coax it towards success. So I think that's the, the relationship is that I, I observe, I had, I built the tools to observe the immune response, but I also built the immune response from the bottom up repeatedly over and over again in my career. And I learned a lot about where its defects and where its strengths are. And so I think those things converge into a broad spectrum vaccine technology. And I think that's why my technology is working, why we're ahead of, uh, of the other efforts and the other approaches that were taken is that Many of them get knowing what I know. I'm like, well, that could not have worked given what I know now. And I, I just was lucky. I was one of the first people to be able to open up the hood of the car and then tinker on it, rebuild, rebuild engines over and over again. And so that made me understand what happens when a, when a car is not work, the engine's not working as expected. Do you think that a, that a respiratory um, illness vaccine that would cover flu and COVID say, do you think that can work? Yeah, we're, we're working on it. So we, we right now they're separate programs. We have uh, flu is our by far our most advanced program, as you'd mentioned, but we're applying our same technology to the coronavirus. Um, we're also applying it to HIV. 
we actually did an experiment. We applied it all the way out to, to anti-venom and the technology induces ultra broad venom responses, anti-venom responses in mice, which for us, it was just a demonstration that the platform isn't limited to viruses, but there is an application there because that immunization schedule, we're thinking about contacting the current groups around the world that create equine anti-venom and being like, how, how would you like to license our improved immunization protocol? Um, which we, we could do a lot of good quickly that way. Um, the, the platform, yeah, is broadly applicable. Um, what would the way it works is that it works on a it cons it focuses on conserved sites, and so to the extent that a set of viruses have conserved sites, um, we can focus on them. So coronavirus and influenza, they don't really have any conserved sites to each other, and so the way we would create a combined product would actually be just mix the two things together. Mm -hmm. There, there are like there are multiple vaccines out there that actually mix two different types of pathogens together. So you get immunity to both. And we are, um, we're definitely looking at that because it would simplify, um, it creates some complexities in phase trial design and endpoints, but it has the advantage of you're only paying for one big trial rather than having to pay for two. And it's a product people would like. I think a lot of people will be like, yeah, if I have to go in and get a shot, I'd rather get just cover me for coronavirus and flu at once. And so we're looking at that. So how did you decide to focus on the flu first as opposed to HIV or whatever it happens to be? Yeah, so I, I came up with the technology concept first. It was a little bit of a hammer looking for a nail situation where mm -hmm. I was like, I was actually on my motorcycle and I was I was trying to figure out how to focus on this very annoying epitope on this one protein that was hard to target. And I said, what I'm like, I need to keep it folded. You can't cut out that peptide. It'll fall apart. People have tried that and it's always failed. Um, I was like, I need to find some way to like dilute out the other surfaces. And some people have tried to put sugars, um, it's glycan shielding. It's, it's not sufficiently effective. I was like, what I really need to do is somehow like change the concentration on a per site basis. And I came up with, I was like, you know, what I should do, I should make a whole bunch of that protein. I should mutate all the other sites, lots of different, like 10 different ways. They're all mutated everywhere else, except that they have not changed on that one site. And then if I mix them and I lower the dose, there will only be enough of this conserve site to produce an immune response. And I was like on the motorcycle. And then I was like, Jake, you're an idiot. By the time I got home, I was like, that's not the purpose of that technology is not to save a couple months on an engineering campaign for a monoclonal. That's a vaccine technology. And so that was like my realization of the approach. And, and then I wanted to go find where do I apply this first? Right. And so I think it was helpful that I was able to approach it from that direction because it was a very genus patent style, big, big concept that could apply to many areas. So I, I made a list of different pathogens and I was reviewing them. Um, but part of it was that I, I have this philosophy that whenever possible, you should work on an animal model that actually gets the disease. And I really attribute um, Arvind Rajpal for discussions I had with him. He was my, my mentor back at uh, Renat for this. Um, uh, we were noticing that Zoetis was being spun out of Pfizer and we were like, well, that's good for Pfizer, but we're good for Zoetis. But he's like, I'm not convinced that's the best choice because he's like, imagine that you're working on an animal model that actually gets disease. It forces you to make a drug that works. It's uh, if, if I'm working on mice, they don't really get, you know, flu or HIV. So you have a very oh, artificial yes, system. Right. And like, let's say, you, and let's say you made a perfect vaccine. Nobody gives a crap. Like that, like no one's going to, no mouse is going to buy your drug. Save the mice. Yeah, but if you can work on a pig or a, or, or a dog or some system where they actually get the disease, like a farmer or a pet owner is really loves that animal or cares about it, and you better make a drug that works. And so it forces you to align incentives of science towards building things that work, which I think is always important. It's easy to get distracted by these 
kind of artificial models. The other reason is that there's a market there. It takes years to get all the way through the BLA in humans. Whereas if you can go work on a market and you can start selling your drug and it's working so well, you're making money from it. I think that facilitates your uptake and 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 is a, a, a clever business strategy. I'll say in vaccine science, I'm not the first person to think about this. There's been a history of people testing on animals like cattle and, and other animals and then providing those vaccines as they went towards humans. And it's smart. Um, and so I, I contacted a friend of mine and asked him, I was like, what is the biggest animal market where there's the problem with the vaccines is rapid mutation of the pathogen. And he said, well, Jake, it's, it's flu and pigs. That's definitely a, a big market there. Um, oh, and that also has a human market. That was my other requirement. And I, so I liked it. I also like flu because it's, it's stuck in that holding pattern. It's more, it is the most studied vaccine because they, they make a new vaccine at twice every year. And therefore there's more vaccines created for flu than, than any other system. So it's a great, it's a great system because it's incredibly well studied and yet it's stuck in with exactly the technology I was proposing to fix the system with the antigens are pretty stable. So the HA spikes are nicely stable, unlike HIV proteins where it, they're known to be annoying to work with. So they were easy to work with. There were also um, you could go out like in those early experiments, I was doing this stuff on the cheap. I built an animal facility in Guatemala and I was ordering the HA antigens from Sinobiological. And I was just lucky that they happened to have a pretty good inventory of them, which that, that made it possible for me to start these studies spending like 500 bucks per protein, as opposed to spending thousands per protein and, and making it so I couldn't even start. Um, so th those things all worked in my favor. I guess the other thing is that influenza has these super well-established assays, hemagglutination inhibition assays, micronutrialization assays. And it's, it's uh, not a particularly high biosafety level virus, which means you can run these assays in most commoditized laboratories. That, that also would have blocked me from working on other more, more dangerous pathogens. So it kind of had all the tools in place and everything lined up for it was the perfect system to start with. Um, and, and so that, that was the reason I, I started with flu. You know, it, I, I just happen to think about, and I'm sure you remember this, a few years ago, the Chinese had a big problem with the pigs. They all had the yeah. flu and pork prices in China exploded long before this current, you know, inflation. And, and so it just, I, I think about, um, you know, just feeding the world. It's really, 100, so many yeah. poor countries rely upon pork. They can't afford beef. It's a $180 million per year market for flu shots for pigs. So it's a substantial market. It, they get the same kinds of flus as people. So it's the same, the same actual sets of HAs besides HAB they don't get. So you can actually make a simpler product for pigs, but it's your, your, it's like the world's best validation. I think the biggest risk that nobody appreciates and the incentives are too long for human attention is making some stupid choices preclinically that don't really become relevant until phase two. And I think partially because different people are handling these different steps I think there's a incentive misalignment to be careful early to correct for that. And my feeling was by working on pigs and attack, going after that market. So we're, we're right now, we're talking to all the big vet players because the product's ready for the vet market. Right. Um, and my, my feeling is that it can only help you to go have a product out there that you force you, you forced yourself to work on something that worked. And also if you're moving towards humans, what better way to sit back and be like, yeah, this is, I feel comfortable. And even in the inherent world of risk, I have mitigated by the fact that the same thing I'm moving forward with into humans, we are making, you know, we're a, a big chunk of the $180 million market that exists for pigs and huge numbers of animals are being protected from the vaccine technology. And so I, that was 
a huge incentive for me to go after that that system. And it's more annoying to work with pigs than mice. They are, I mean, they're pretty cute when they're small, but they're they're bigger. <laughs> they're, they're a lot <laughs> bigger. Uh, but but I think the resulting value of the data was worth it. So that's a perfect segue, maybe to uh, to talk a little bit about your team. Um, your colleague Sarah Ives mentioned that you've got this great ability to mitigate risk. And obviously you've used that with the pigs and that sort of thing. But how did you go about recruiting your team and tell me about their importance in the whole uh, process? Yeah, so I think, again, this goes back to my father, like learning from him and all, you know, they also used to pull me into poker games with him and his friends when I was little. It was just all about like, it's a, it's poker is actually very similar to biotech as well, because you need to know the method, right? You need to know the probabilities, the deck odds and the pot odds. You're going to lose if you don't know the fundamental technology, but you also need to know people because you're also going to lose if you don't know how to read the other guy right. and pick up on their tells and screw with them a little bit without giving away too much. And like, the truth is, if you're not, if you're and if you just do that, you're also going to lose. You have to have both. And I, this is, this is why I'm actually in favor of, um, I think CEOs with biotechnology background are essential for success. I think yes. it's, cha it's challenging to get both because it, in general, scientific trained people, they're looking at the pot odds and the deck odds, but they're not looking at the other, you know, they don't have that side of the training and they're thinking about things in the wrong way. But I think also you bring people in like Pfizer had a CEO that was, uh, he used to work at McDonald's. He didn't understand the core part of the technology, Kindler. And, and it, I'm sure he was great at McDonald's, but he wasn't very successful at yeah. Pfizer because he, he didn't understand the fundamentals. And I think you have to have both to be successful. Um, so my strategy really is from, yeah, watching my, my father and his friends do that and try to understand, try to pick up on where great people are. I think I'm looking for, I like people, I like talking to them. And I think I, I, I don't always get it right, but I think I'm pretty good at identifying someone where I'm like, that person is exceptional. And particularly if they're exceptional and I see that they're on like a ramp up where I see like their full potential hasn't been tapped yet. And I try to make, uh, make an opportunity to go, you know, befriend those people and, and just great people. Even if I feel that they are tapped and they're doing great work, I can try to call them and be like, you know, I hard sell a little bit. I'm like, you look, I, I'm sure you're proud of your work you're doing and you do great work, but I want you to ask yourself, how much are people going to care about everything you do 30 years from now? Like come with me and let's try to work on this. If we do our jobs right a thousand years from now, people will still be benefiting from the work we do today. Like that's, that's, I think that there's certain types of people who are going to come over for that reason. And those are the right people you want. Like Napoleon once said, you're not going to like inspire an army by, you know, 30 pence a day. It's, it's the belief in the nation and the mission that causes people to win wars. And so I look for people that are um, focused in that way because that, that's the kind of energy that they're gonna bring a level of intensity and focus. They're gonna, they're the person who's thinking about the problem in the shower. Um, I guess the other part is you have to, you ha if you really wanna build something great, you have to get over yourself and you have to be comfortable with bringing in people that are so good that they intimidate you. They, they yes. need to be better than, better than you in some way and you need to embrace that and be okay with it and create a community where people are, um, are able to talk to each other and, and bring the best ideas forward. It's tough in science because I think science is so there's such a like tenuous barrier between ego and your ideas where someone says your idea is bad. You kind of think maybe they think I'm bad. And so you need to create a safe space for that, where people are comfortable challenging each other, but they're challenging the idea, not 
not a person. Because I think scientists a lot of times get kind of gridlocked on ego. They, they feel that someone else doesn't respect them. And so they stop talking to each other. Mm -hmm. And I think I'm, I think what I help about that is that I, my ego is associated with the goal. I absolutely want to achieve the goal, but that means that I don't, I don't mind being wrong now, as long as that if someone tells me I'm wrong and I realize they're right, then they've actually done me a favor because I will shift my position to the better answer because ah. that gets me closer to the goal rather than like, it's, it's, it seems very like penny wise and found foolish to like, not want to admit that you're wrong because then you're stuck. You're stuck in the failing mode. Like get, right. get over to the right answer and surround yourself with people. And then my job as the CEO is to like, make sure that with people challenge me on something and they're right to thank them and acknowledge it and do it publicly in the group. Because what I do is I'm setting a tone that, that, that is the ideas and a better idea is what is valuable. And, and that creates a, a space for people to work well. It's also my job to like, try to avoid bringing in the jerks, right? Because a jerk can ruin that, that kind of effervescence of like human potential in a group. So I try to go find people that are exceptional and they work and they need to work well together with others because otherwise you're wasting a lot of metabolism on infighting as opposed to like accomplishing the mission. I had a couple specific tools that helped. I was, you know, for, for more senior hires, I think I had, um, I had this, you know, people from Pfizer, there was a number of great people from Pfizer that I asked to come along with. And we known each other for years. I, I knew people from Stanford that I asked to come along with. I met um, Stephanie Weisner. She was, she's an author now of building backwards from biotech. And I met her during that process. And I was, I just was impressed by her. I think I got to meet her for a bit. I was like, this sort of person seems like they could be could could accomplish greatness. And so I, I wanted her involved. And then I have this relationship with the university of San Francisco. They have this biotechnology program and they, since 2014, I have taken on master's interns from that program and I've brought them in to work with my lab. Um, I, I, and I send up projects that they run on this night class where I can basically send kind of a tough project for everyone in the deep end. And then that's my screening method to identify people that like kicked ass at that project. And then I invite them in to work with us. And that gives you a chance to test the person's ability to work well with the, the other team members. Um, and they get trained. And so by the time they've graduated from the program, we can offer them a job. And this person we know works well with us and they're trained. It's like the best possible way to create a nice upramp of excellent new people. And I can, I'm able to like kind of explore a lot more people than I would otherwise, that, and certainly better understand them than I would in a one hour meeting in an interview, which is super helpful. So I, I think those tools have helped me gather the right group of people together to accomplish it. And and some, sometimes I realize I meet someone and they're actually on the other side of the table. So I think Dave Ganjemi, I met him initially and he was consulting for another company. And I realized we were like, you know, I had a little bit of disincentive because the other company and I were, were friends, but they wanted, it was a question of who was going to control the dialogue with the um, adventure. Yeah. Yeah. A little bit, you know, they're buddies, but like, you know, they had different interests. They wanted to control the conversation with the government. I was like, well, no, I'm bringing a bunch of value and I want to control government. And Genjemi was representing the other group. So he's really actually on the other side of the table. But the problem is he, he impressed me so much when I met him or I was sitting there being like, how do I turn an adversary into an ally? And so I just I was like, hey, is there some way I can consult with you as well? And he's like, he's like, great. I'm glad you said that. I was really impressed with your technology as well. And I checked, I checked with my, you know, the, the other company to make sure it was all calm. I don't, I don't, I kind of, my other technique is I don't believe in screwing people over. I think you should always be fair, but you should also not let yourself screwed over. But firm, but fair is a good strategy for success. And, and it worked out. So the other company ended up not, um, they were, I think the other company had some financial problems. And so then I was like, I swooped on it right away. I was like, hey, Jimmy, come work with us. You're amazing. And so I think that there's like a little bit of a history there behind spotting each of these people that have like formed the, the merry band.
So you test on pigs instead of mice. We've covered that. But you did it in Guatemala. Yeah. How'd that happen? Yeah, so I had the idea. And, you know, initially I was pretty fresh out of from Pfizer. And I, you know, I just thought, oh, this is going to be easy. I'll just like walk around, talk to a few VCs, raise a few million and go run it. And I put together a very expensive proposal that, you know, would have worked, but it was it was my naive mindset at the time back in 2012. And, and I think I was also like, inky. my mindset of what expensive and non-expensive was, was, you know, heavily parameterized by my time at Pfizer. So it was very out of touch with where I would be in the, um, in the field. And so I talked to a series of venture capital groups and they were like, I think first off, they're like, we don't, I think they were like, who the hell are you? Fair, fair point. And so that was why I was like, okay, I'm going to go do <laughs> Uh, do Stanford and and publish like crazy and do all the things I did so I could I so people would listen to me because I brought this technology and the world needed to hear it. Um, they also were at the time were not that interested in uh, influenza. They they would hear the whole thing and they're like, okay, universal vaccines. What can it do for cancer? And because that was the area of topic back then. And um, and so I felt like I needed to address that. And with with vaccines, there really isn't much between the idea and proof in an animal. There's there's a limit to how much you can do in vitro. And so I knew I needed to test this in animals. I called my buddy up, found out about the pigs. My next call was to my father. And I said, hey, how much are pigs in Guatemala? <laughs> and uh, I then called my, so I'm an affiliate professor at the University of San Carlos in Guatemala. And I'm, I'm friends with these like remarkable faculty down there. And I said, look, I want to go run this study. I need to, I don't have a big budget for this. I had a little bit of money from distributed bio that was excess, but I couldn't spend a lot. My partners would be like, I think they thought I was a boondoggle early on, right? And they, they were mostly, you know, they're like, this seems like, a, I don't know, they didn't care. Um, and so I needed to de-risk it. And I think the stars just aligned that the faculty wanted to work on this with me. My brother happened to be a construction worker. And so he was able to come down and work with us to lay the thing out. And we got veterinarians in and involved. And I was able to go run the studies in vivo for, you know, like maybe an eighth of the cost, which basically means I was able to do it. If it wasn't for that, I would not have been able to even start this process. And my, my other reason for making it much less expensive is that I think that's why vaccines um, advance slowly is that the truth is anything in, you're doing that's worthwhile for engineering, you're going to have to iterate. And if the model is you have to take a year and a half to get some crazy grant to run one study and wait, it's going to be a decade before you do meaningful improvement and humans get distracted over that time period most of the time. So I was like, no, I need my own animal facility. I want to be able to do rapid iteration. I want to be able to run two to three studies a year to be able to optimize this. And, and there was a series of studies I had to run. I had to do dilution series. I had to do single component versus large component, number of valency, um, uh, adjuvanting. There was a bunch of questions and I needed to run them rapidly and in succession to bring up a pretty substantially different technology online. And so building out that animal facility down there and just my history in Guatemala and knowing how to do business and being associated with the, the, uh, the, the University of San Carlos all kind of came together in this awesome way to make that possible. And it was definitely challenging in some ways. We had like Instead of a minus 80 freezer, we had like an ice chest full of dry ice. That was our field deployable. <laughs> and my, you know, it's it's almost minus 80. So it actually works pretty well. Um, shipping was a headache at one point because we had USADA approval and everything for shipping. But I, I think there was like a delayed effect of the Ebola crisis that they suddenly made it a lot harder to ship biospecimen just as a policy from Guatemala. And so we had to go through like a whole rigmarole to get the samples back to the States. But ultimately we were successful. And it was that data that I generated in Guatemala that ultimately 
I put in front of the Gates Foundation, and that's why we were awarded their, their grant, where we now run studies at University of Auburn, Auburn University and University of Georgia with the Live Challenge. Um, so it was a, a critical stepping stone to get past a, a, a funding gap in vaccine science. So you get the results, but actually you don't at first, right? It's yeah. In fact, it's in the Netflix series. There's a woman at a screen saying this and this and that, and you can then it pans over to you and Sarah, and you're like, will you just give us the results? Oh, yeah. yeah that's and right. then she does. <laughs> yeah. And and I could see from the profile of your face, just the profile, I saw this really joy, just pure joy. But then at the same time, this sudden realization of responsibility. Yeah. I think there are a couple of points in this project. Like when we first saw the first Eliza a couple of years before, and then that point where, you know, partly I, I work on multiple things. And so there's a certain like glee in trying to run the experiment to kill an idea because it, it's a sense of relief because if you can kill off uh, an idea that frees up your time, it's an opportunity cost. You could be working on something else. So I kind of want to kill off things if I can, when you see good results, it's exciting, but it means they're like, oh no, that this is definitely becoming my life this is going to be the thing that i work on and like i'm glad like i'm grateful to be able to work on something that has the potential for such a long-range positive benefit to to humankind but i'm also not blind to the fact that it's going to be an uphill battle for a long way and like my life would be easier if like I'm, i was aware that like look if that, if that looked bad and i was selling dbio i could just take the money and go live in hawaii you know what i mean i could have lived a, a simpler and less consequential life like but because it looks good, there's there's no way I'm turning. If the, if the data tells me it's not going to work, I can easily pivot. But if the data is good, then this becomes my life and it's my obligation to go bring these these broad spectrum vaccine technologies online. It's by far the greatest thing I can do with my hands in our lifetime in this like biotechnology revolution that can like really echo through history, right? These are pathogens that have harassed us since the beginning of time. And we're in this magical restriction point where we could wipe some of them out. And so they would never exist afterwards, which is... Like if I think, I don't know where humans are going, but I know they're going to go there with less pathogens. When I think about the future, that's what the world looks like. And we can actually be making that future happen. And so that was what I felt was like the, it's exciting to see it, but I'm like, oh, God damn it. Like, this, this is, this is, <laughs> and, and I'm, I'm also already thinking about the next set of experiments and like what, what needs to be done next. So it's kind of just the grind of taking, mitigating the unknown. Like, I think I have this like meat grinder in my mind where I basically try to go, what are the biggest areas um, to address? How do I mitigate them? And also I over-engineer every step. Um, my strategy is anytime I see a river, I build three bridges, which takes some more resources at every step, but long-term it's way cost-effective because it means I cross every river every single time. I can afford to bridge to fail and I'm still gonna achieve success on the other side. I think it's worth um, attacking a problem in a couple different ways so that you just have like optionality for success and so I'm I'm thinking that I'm like, okay, what's the first experiment to get me there? Okay, what's my fallback position? What's my third fallback position? And how can I tack them all in parallel? And I and that that's worked for me. I think it, I think it goes back to Guatemala because you you have to do that in a civil war because you cannot rely on anything showing up. The water might go out. The person might not show up to their hotel room on time. Like you don't you know someone's going to drop an egg, and and the show must go on. And and the way you do that is you have backup plans. So then you get 
the recognition from the Gates Foundation. Yeah. What does that mean for the continuation of, of the studies? So that was huge. Um, that money meant that we were able to run live challenge studies in the United States, not in my facility, an independent facility. So Ted Ross is like known by pretty much everyone in the vaccine space. And he has this uh, facility at the University of Georgia and he, he can analyze ferrets. Um, ferrets are really important because those are the animals you test va flu vaccines in before you go into humans. Um, we also had um, Konstantinos Kriakis at Auburn University. He had a pig facility in the United States. It was a third party facility, uh, but it also had the ability to do something I could never do in Guatemala. And that is that he could do a live challenge experiment. So in Guatemala, I could only bring down protein, put it in the healthy pigs. I would take their serum and their cells and I'd bring back to the States and analyze it. And it was only in the States in a BSL-2 room that we would mix virus with the serum to see if it was neutralizing. He has a biosafety facility where you can go in there and spray the pigs in the face with virus to see whether the vaccine protected them from getting sick. And that's, that's the thing, of course, you care about. And, and that money um, helped us pay for those studies. So that was huge for us to be able to get independent validation in third-party labs, pigs and ferrets, both ferrets to go to humans and to make sure that there wasn't something special about a pig, that I wasn't overfitting the problem now I've seen it work on ferrets and pigs and mice, and it works glorious in all, in all of those platforms, those animals. Um, so it got us got us to that point. We actually completed all that work in um, in January. Um, we're about to be we're, we've turned it all in, and you know, in theory, that what they published was that there was going to be a phase two, like ten million dollar of phase two follow on funding with that grand challenge. And so we're you know obviously gunning to go receive those funds. Those are critical funds for us because we can use those to initiate cell line development, which is the first critical stage of manufacture. Um, and we can there's one final experiment we'd like to run to look at transmission. So we saw ninety nine percent to ninety nine point nine percent reduction of virus in the the lungs, the trachea, the nose of the the pigs. Um, we think that that means they, they can no longer be transmissible and we're testing that because th that's a practical consequence for, you know, the whole thing I was saying with coronavirus, you kind of want your vaccine to mean you don't get sick and you can't transmit to others. And we think, they think we, we think we've accomplished that. We just want to test it directly. Um, and it lets you build those cell lines. So cell lines are critical because the cell lines mean that you're, you're, it's fiat complete, right? You have now have the cell lines. It's just a question of purification and running phase one. And it reduced the costs that I need during my my series A to get us through that insane inflection point of phase one, where we put it into humans and we don't just get safety in that phase one, we get breadth of protection. We can go take their, their serum and we can test it against a century of influenza viruses to see what is the breadth of, of, of protection in a human that we're inducing. And that's a that's a powerful inflection point for us. And and that the Gates Foundation helped drive us there. And we're, we're hoping to get that second award as well. So there are two things I love about biotech, Jake. The first is the people. We've talked about that. And the second is kind of the unfettered optimism of it all. You know, to believe that when you start out, that you can create a post-pathogen humanity. Yeah. I mean, that's just that's just an explosive. It's so huge that most people, I think, can't even conceptualize of the possibility. And so I think as I step back, I think it brings to mind for me the old Bernard Shaw quote that Robert Kennedy used so effectively, was it 30 years ago, whatever it was, um, 
you know, some men see things as they are and ask why I dream things that never were and say, why not? Yeah. I, it, I'm not sure that I have ever directly um, put that quote in, in the context of a person before. But I do now. It's really exciting. And, and just to think about how you as a young man view the course of your future life. It's so, incredibly cool. I want to show you something over here. That art piece you can see on the wall. So that's oh, yeah. that's my my grandfather, Stanley Veer and Gunn. Um, his wife painted it. You'll notice there's a rocket ship behind him. So he was right. involved in Operation Paperclip at Rocketdyne. He was, I think, leading the J2 and co-led the F1 engine designs. Wow. And when you think about things that have never existed before, I find that helpful. You know, we were, you go back, you know, basically a century, we weren't, we weren't even flying. And those guys went into something that no one had ever done before. And then they did it, right? Like that's the nature of technology is we can, we can do radical new things. It's even easier for us for this, this thing I'm describing. I think it was a harder case to make before they eradicated smallpox, but they did it. Right. And we got, close with some other pathogens like so we already know we can do it it's there, there's things in the way it's mostly i think the as i bring my tech my technology address was feasibility but there's also the um getting global will to to coordinate and be involved and, and be willing to um enable a global eradication campaign again i i have done everything i can to like remove the sharp edges on us being able to be that instrument so like i even though alum works pretty well in our vaccine, there's other adjuvants that work. And I'm like, I don't want alum in there. I know it doesn't actually cause autism, but a certain percentage of people think it will. I'm like, why put that in? Why not put in something that everyone's going to be like, yeah, that's fine. You know, in oil. Um, I, I, and I've been pretty careful at trying to go, how do I optimize and recognize the nature of optics to be able to get there? Because you need the most number of people to be comfortable taking the medicine as possible, but it is possible to eradicate. We know we've done it already successfully. We've all already gotten close with a bunch of other pathogens. So um, I, I, I think I do spend about half of my mind, like in living in the future of like where I think the world can be, but like, that's the cool thing about being alive is you can imagine it's something that doesn't exist. And then you could build a foundation under it. And that cloud and castle in the clouds becomes real. And like, I, I actually kind of think that's part of the meaning of life is like, why are you here? It's like to grab a paintbrush and shape the world like that. Cause like, that's, that creates something that is personally fulfilling and it creates a legacy. Like I don't like, what what is the meaning of you and it's that you can build something that echoed beyond yourself that your little drop in the water carried out and like this kind of work is that those ripples could go on for centuries and and that that's exciting that makes me like i feel like this is the most useful thing that i can do in my time recognizing that many things are in my way and i won't may well may not succeed i think that's okay i think it's the prospects of the consequences of what if that if you can build it and it works it changes things like you know, really forever, right? Like the beauty of eradication is that you have destroyed a disease and that, that's exciting to me. Um, and I know there's a lot of stuff in the way, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't try. And I think that the people who argue against new things, those people have been proven wrong since fire. That every time someone came in and tried something new, there was probably someone else in that cave being like, no, get it out of here. That's going to serve no purpose, right? Those guys have been wrong every step of the way. Uh, and and I that's why I think you, you should 
you know, obviously we don't want to do stupid things to hurt ourselves, but I think that it's worth learning and building new things and, and, and the growth of, and progress of, of humanity and society is built on those things. And it's also the attractive thing about science is that there are fields where it's relative, whether there's been improvement or not, but like science and math, no, it is objectively, you know, more than the previous generation knew. So it is a stacking approach where we, we are growing. And I think there's something enjoyable about getting better over time. <laughs> so I, I, and I want, I hope that we can continue that. What's really exciting is that the combination of big data and AI are making that change exponential. Yeah. And so as I approach old age, <laughs> um, I expect to see it in my lifetime. I expect that the next five years are going to completely and radically change the world. Yeah. And 99% of the people out there, including those in charge, have no idea about it. So that's really exciting. Another Santiago story. I, you know, when I was growing up, there used to be two, two phone lines in all of Santiago. And you have to like sit down and wait your turn to, to use this thing called Guatel, which is like one little phone room. And there was like a couple of cars. There was like, it was all dirt roads. There was only a couple of cars in Santiago. And I remember the phone lines, even when the internet came along, I'm like, how is everyone going to catch up? It just seems like there's such an infrastructure deficit that people are just hopelessly behind on being able to, they don't even have phone lines. The internet's online. Like the indigenous are being left behind in this, this wave, right? But then- the, the cell phones came and the cell phones enabled this like complete quantum leap across a whole technology and infrastructure deficit where suddenly you go down and you'd see like a little Mayan dude talking in Zutuil on his canoe is like a little Cayuco with all of his groceries. And he's contacting the different markets to try to decide which market he should go bring his stuff to, to make the most resources. And, and, and you also see like Mayan kids that were like, suddenly they have punk rock hairdos because they're looking at YouTube. And like, <laughs> it, was, it was a magnificent example of how a, a, an advance in technology can render obsolete and like wipe the slate clean and cause a reshuffling of the deck of creating new fairness and new generation of opportunities and like change things so dramatically. And it was within a couple of years. I remember it was like a couple of years of me when my friends first had cell phones. And I remember we were going up to see the Leonid meter shower one night and they pulled out their cell phones. They're like, hey, we can all coordinate by this. Cause I was like, how are we gonna find each other up there? And I realized that's when I, that moment clicked for me where I was like, wow, that's a, this is like way better than walkie talkies. This is awesome. Yeah. And and then a couple of years later, I watched it transform down there. And I think that's, that is the beauty. And I do expect we're gonna keep seeing these big, you know, these big shifts in society where a technology is going to come and it's going to make life easier. In, in general, they will work for the better. They're going to make life better. And there's going to be parts of us that don't, you know, like you're still going to have people that like to farm hundreds of years in the future in their little garden in front of their house or whatever. But I think there's certain types of society they're going to tra radically transform by the virtue of these new technologies. And I hope to be part of making that. And, and, I, and I hope those technologies help people. You know, I think that's what I hope to see is uh, I think what we share is the desire for people to be able to go build more and beautiful, creative things and accomplish more of the things they want and create a safer, safer and happier and healthier world. Well, thank you very much for your time today, Jake. I really enjoyed getting to know you and, and then participating in this podcast with you. Thanks for tuning in to the Life Sciences and Biotech podcast. We'll see you in the next episode. The information contained in this website and podcast are purely informational and not considered investment recommendations. Tim Doherty's participation 
in Biotech Insights is separate and apart from his role as an investment advisor representative. Nothing contained herein can be construed as a recommendation or endorsement of any of the companies discussed. Tim Doherty also has no financial affiliation with any of the companies mentioned in this communication. Tim Doherty makes no representation that the information contained in this material is accurate and is under no obligation to update this information as changes occur.